I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 4, Gospel according to John chapter 4, and we'll read the first uh, 29 verses, I believe, this morning. If you are uh, here with us for the first time this morning, back in uh, the months of May and June, we took a walk through the issue of human sexuality here in our congregation. Whenever you uh, preach on a topic such as that, you can't say everything that there is to say. And uh, there end up being a lot of clippings on the editorial floor, some worth saying, some um, that have to wait for another day. Well, there are a couple of things that that I'd like to dive into yet this morning, pick up a couple of those clippings and look at now. And so we're going to do that just looking at the topic of relationship and looking at uh, at it from the perspective of John chapter 4. So let's look at uh, the first 29 verses there. I invite you to read this whole account um, sometime perhaps later today. We'll just look at the first 29 verses now. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are and the man you now have is, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, see, or come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John is, <clears throat> is sort of famous uh, for working on different levels. And what I mean by that is there's always sort of this surface-level meaning, but then as you begin to dig deeper and deeper into the text, you begin to mine more and more precious truth. For instance, if you look at John chapter 2, you find uh, two rather simple, straightforward stories. Jesus turning water into wine, right, that first miracle of Christ, and then Jesus clearing the money changers out of the temple. But when you begin to look a little deeper at those stories, you see that the water that Jesus turned into wine in that chapter came from six stone jars. And John tells us these were the kind of jars and the kind of water used for ceremonial washing. And and suddenly you begin to see that this isn't just a, a, a simple miracle story. But rather, Jesus takes what's finite, he takes what's limited, this finite, limited symbol of a different age, an age of our brokenness, an age where we need repeated cleansing from our sins. Over and over, we need to be washed. And Jesus takes that water and he transforms it into a bottomless symbol of joy and the life of the new age that is to come. It's a symbol of grace, the grace that floods the world through Jesus Christ. And then you look at the story of the cleansing of the temple, and you hear John proclaim that that Jesus' grace is always accompanied by Jesus' truth. Jesus comes bringing wine, yes, but he also comes bringing a whip. Jesus declares in that chapter that he actually is the new temple of God, and therefore it's only those who come to Jesus in true faith who are able to truly see and be with God the Father. Grace and truth. And it reminds us of what we heard in the prologue of John, chapter 1, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, 
the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. That's how the gospel of John works. It works at these different levels. And it's good to know that when you come to John chapter 4 and we find the Samaritan woman at the well. Because this woman is all, or this, this account is all about thirst and it's about water. But I think it's also about more than one kind of thirst. It's about more than one kind of thirst, isn't it? First of all, it's about a literal thirst for literal water. This woman comes to the well looking for wet, real water. You see that in verse 28. She even comes with a real water jar to carry her real water back home once she has it. Even Jesus asks her for a real drink. And when Jesus offers her his living water, she thinks he's merely offering her an endless supply of the real stuff. Right? Sort of like Bob Barker on The Price is Right, offering you a, a, a lifetime supply of Campbell's soup. That's what she thinks is going on. An endless supply of H2O. So first of all, it's a story about literal thirst and real water. But we quickly come to see that it's about more than that, right? It's also about a metaphorical thirst. And we know this from the way Jesus talks. Because he quickly moves from requesting water to offering water. But it's a special water, isn't it? It's, it's living water. It's the kind of water that if you drink it, he says, you'll never be thirsty again. It's the kind of water that, that once it's inside of you, it becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life, he says. And, and the fact that it's a metaphorical thirst is confirmed for us in verse 28. How? Because this woman who came to the well for one thing, right? She came for water. And she must have really needed it because she comes at noon. She comes in the heat of the day when people really don't go to the well. That's when she goes for the water. And yet, after meeting Jesus and after spending some time with Jesus and talking to him, we read in verse 28 that she leaves her water jar at the well and goes home. The one thing she came for, her literal water, she forgets all about. And she goes home without her jar. Now, how is it that when you have one aim one goal, one thing to do, one mission in mind, how is it that you forget all about that one thing? Well, the answer is you find something better, right? You find something better. And in order to do that, you sort of have to overcome your tunnel vision. You have to look around a little bit is one thing I discovered I'm not very good at on this sabbatical thing. Uh, many of you have been asking how the sabbatical went, how our bike trip went the last month, and I thought I might as well just tell you all at once. So I'll just tell you now. And I have mixed feelings about the whole thing, all right? Let me share with you why. On the one hand, it was a, it was a great success. I mean, this is how it sort of worked, right? 
Um, our travel agency set up this bike trip. We left from Passau, Germany, and we went first week to Vienna. The second week was from Vienna to Budapest. And how it worked is they would come and pick up your luggage in the morning, and they would transport it to your next hotel. And then we had this little map that showed our route, and it was also a GPS map that would tell us how we were, or the route that we were supposed to take to our next hotel. Well, I'm kind of a, a tunnel vision sort of guy, right? And so my mission for the day became getting to that next hotel. That's what I wanted to do. And that was what the trip sort of became. We would get to the next hotel, and we'd take a deep breath, and we'd kind of say, all right, we made it. We're still alive. We're not sleeping in a cornfield somewhere. Um, this is good. And then we'd start to look at the book and look back on our day, and we'd notice, oh, well, this book says there was this great castle you were supposed to visit along the way, or there was this wonderful cathedral, or some kind of vineyard that you were supposed to stop at. There was a free bottle of wine at this place, and we totally missed it. We don't like wine anyway, so it wasn't a big deal, but some of you would have died. But that's kind of how it went, right? It was like, we've got to get to the next destination. And in that regard, we made it. It was a great success. We are home. We made it, all right? At the same time, I have a feeling we missed a lot. And in that regard, maybe we didn't do so well. You see, once in a while, you've got to take your eyes off the immediate goal and see if there's anything better in store. And that's what I think John might be telling us here in our text the Samaritan woman found something pretty spectacular. So spectacular it made her forget about her own water jug and that literal water and her literal thirst. She found Jesus, right? And those of you who have found Jesus, those of you who know Jesus, you know the feeling, you know what this is all about. She found the way to the Father, she found the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, who is like a spring of, of water welling up within us, constantly flooding our souls with, with the grace and the truth that's necessary to live with God. She found a water that satisfied her deepest thirst, her metaphorical thirst, and yet it's a very, very real thirst, isn't it? She found that thirst satisfied in a way that literal water never could. She turned aside from what she had come for. She turned aside from her assigned route, her GPS track, and she found Jesus. Which brings us to the third kind of thirst that I think we find in this text. And that is relational thirst. Relational thirst. It doesn't take much to see that this text is a little bit about relationships, does it? I mean, Jesus points it out himself. It's sort of, a, sort of an example of this woman's metaphorical thirst. He says, you've got a relational thirst going on in you, don't you? You've had serial husbands five of them to date. And the man you're with now is not your husband. 
In fact, some commentators put the emphasis there on the word her. The man she is with is not her husband. In other words, he's someone else's husband. There's even some sexual tension going on in this text, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's pointed out specifically that, that Jesus not only crosses racial lines here, a Jew speaking with a Samaritan, okay, but he also rumbles through gender barriers, a man speaking with a woman, perhaps alone at a well. In fact, John even tells us that his disciples were surprised when they came back with the lunch and they saw Jesus talking with a woman. And yet I think it's, it's so cool that, that there's this implicit trust of Jesus' propriety, isn't there? No one doubted his intentions at all. John says, no one asked, why are you talking to her? They had no doubt whatsoever that everything was on the up and up. But while you can't miss the sexual tension, you can sometimes miss a little of the relational humor here. I mean, this woman goes back to her, her friends, goes back to the town, and she says, she says to them, come and see a man who I think just might be the Messiah. Now, how many times do you think they've heard that line from her before? At least five, right? Maybe six. Hey, I've found a man who checks all the right boxes. I've found my Messiah. I've found my Savior. And you can see the whole town kind of rolling its collective eyes. Not again. Not again. She found someone else. It's humor, but it's not scoffing. It's not demeaning. Rather, it's, it's John and it's Jesus simply pointing out that not all water satisfies our deepest thirst. Not all husbands can satisfy your deepest longings. Friends, remember how way back in, in May or June, perhaps, when we were talking about human sexuality, we were talking about this whole topic, and we talked about our created longings, our creational longings, longings that God placed within us at creation. We said that God created human beings with a desire for companionship and intimacy and fruitfulness. And we said that really those desires point us ultimately to our desire for God, he is the only one who can ultimately meet all of those desires that he has placed in our hearts. And we have to realize that. We have to realize, especially in a fallen and sinful world, that no human being can take God's place in that way. No human being can fill God's shoes. Let me try and explain that a bit. Years ago, um, when Jackie's grandmother died, her grandfather um, shared how lonely he was after that event. He talked about what a terribly hard, hard thing loneliness really is. And I know that, that many of you know this. It's hard to be alone. And that kind of loneliness, friends, that kind of loneliness can cause us 
to jump into relationships that really we shouldn't be in. We're trying to fill, fill in that relational hole that's within us. And I've, I've seen it happen so many times, right? It could be people that have been married for 50 years, and that spouse dies, and suddenly, for whatever reason, three months later, they're in a new relationship and getting married again. A relationship that really can't fill the void. But it's not, it's not just... It's not just people who are widows and widow, widowers. It's, it's people coming out of a divorce. It's, it's young singles, young men and women who, who just feel like they have to be in a relationship. They won't be fulfilled without that relationship. It's, it's same-sex oriented individuals who cannot imagine a life without a partner. And what happens is we begin to view that, that relationship or that next person, that next spouse, that next partner as sort of a savior. They're the one who will complete us. They're the one who will finally fulfill us. They're the one who will save us from this loneliness. And friends, what this text is trying to get at is that can't happen. No one can be your savior but Jesus Christ himself. And whenever we try to raise a human being up to that level of someone who can save us, someone who can deliver us, what we're doing is we're creating an idol of a human being, and they cannot bear that kind of weight. They cannot fulfill that kind of role. They can't deliver on the salvation that we enjoy or that we, we seek, that we long for. And what happens is that relationship at worst, blows up. At best, it just sort of muddles along. But it never becomes the kind of relationship that God intended for us. Our deepest longing can only be satisfied by God. Our deepest thirst is a thirst for God. This is something the, the theologian Augustine said Long ago, he said, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine lived so much of his life trying to satisfy his heart, trying to find someone or something that would complete him, and it wasn't until he found God that his heart truly rested. He knows what he's talking about. Honestly, friends, it's only when you find the true desire of our hearts. It's only when we find Jesus. It's only then that our earthly relationships can actually begin to satisfy. Because if we're trying to find God in our earthly relationships, those relationships, as I said, just can't handle that. They can't handle that kind of weight. They'll collapse they're not built for that. Let me try and fill that in just a bit. Think of a parent-child relationship for a moment. It may seem counterintuitive at first, okay? But the best thing, the very best thing that parents can do for their children 
is to work at their own marriage. Let me say that again. The best thing that parents can do for their children is to work at their own marriage. In other words, you cannot put the weight of a spousal relationship on your children. Your children are not there to complete you. Your children do not exist to fulfill you. Rather, the more complete you are and the more fulfilled you are in your own marriage, the more you are able to be the kind of parent that your children need. Let me give you an example. We all know of parents, right, who cannot say no to their children. They cannot say no. They understand that their children may be making horrible choices in life. They may be hurting themselves in the long run, but still they cannot seem to say no. And often the reason is they don't want to risk their child's love. And they don't want to risk that child's love because it's a love that they need. It's a love that they cannot live without because it's a love that they're not getting somewhere else. Now, parents who possess that unconditional sort of love for one another in their marriage, those parents are then liberated to give their children exactly what those children need as opposed to everything that those children want. Those parents are liberated to actually parent. They can boldly tell their children, No, because they're not living in fear of losing everything if their child gets angry with them, if their child walks away from them. And so they can say, no, you can't have your phone in your room. And no, you can't start dinner with dessert. And no, you can't skip Sunday school again. Parents who have a strong marriage are actually liberated to be good parents. And friends, this is true also of our relationship with God. As I said, what our hearts long for more than anything else, the ultimate desire of our hearts, our true thirst, is for God. It's for a relationship with God. And when you and I are assured of that relationship, when we are assured of God's love, and how do we find that assurance? We find that assurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who stood in our place, that's what the gospel tells us. And because he stood in our place, now when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ himself, and he loves us as much as he loves Jesus Christ, his son. And there is nothing more that you and I could do to make God love us anymore. And there is nothing that we could do to make God love us any less. And friends, when we are convinced of that, when we are convinced in the gospel that God loves us, that we possess that love and we could never, ever, ever lose that love, it allows us then to become better lovers of the people around us. Right? Because we're not seeking in our relationships some sort of Savior. We already have a Savior. We're not seeking some sort of God. We already have a God. And it allows us to become better lovers in the relationships 
that we are in. We stand complete. Everything we desire, we have in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's only when we have Jesus Christ in our lives that we can leave the water jugs behind. It's only when we have Christ that we can enter into into relationships that are right and good and fitting and God-honoring. Friends, we don't know, I'll confess, we don't know much about the circumstances of this woman at the well. We don't know much about her serial relationships, why she entered into them. We don't know the circumstances. We do know Jesus' solution. I can give you the gift of God, living water. And Jesus' solution for her is a solution for all of us. Maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but chapter 4 of this text also begins with the theme of water. Sometimes we think they're just verses that get us to a different location and get the whole story started. But really, John introduces the theme of water right at the beginning of this chapter. He begins with the theme of what? Baptism. Baptism. That theme is already introduced to us in chapter 1 of John's gospel. And when, that's when John says that there is one who's coming after me who will baptize you with not just water, but with the Holy Spirit. And then when you get to chapter 3, that whole theme of baptism comes up again. There you find Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, look, if anyone's going to inherit the kingdom of God, what? They have to be born again. They have to be born of water and the Spirit. They've got to be baptized. And here in chapter 4, Jesus seems to be telling this dear woman, That the water of baptism is not a one-time thing, but it's rather a water that, that wells up deep within us. It's a water that the Holy Spirit uses over and over again to do what? To remind us of who we are. To remind us that we are indeed the children of God. To remind us that we have been we have been cleansed, we have been made pure, we are spotless. We are the the full image bearers of God once again. We are new creations in Him. We are children of God. We have value. We have dignity. That's what the waters of baptism well up within us to tell us over and over and over again. We have to be reminded of that, don't we? We're sinners. We fall. We're broken. And we need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit again and again that we are indeed the children of God. We are indeed the children of God. Friends, I I knew a woman in a totally different circumstance than this woman in our text. You don't know her, so don't try to guess. She had one husband. That's all. And she would never think of divorcing him. But one day she worked up the courage to come into my office and to tell me how much he abused her. He belittled, belittled her verbally over and over and over again. Sometimes he struck her, sometimes in front of the children, 
In other words, he made her feel small, he devalued her, and he made her forget her true worth. And she wondered if the abuse would ever stop. Friends, what she needed more than anything else, just like this Samaritan woman, was Jesus' living water. Water that would well up inside of her day after day, and it would drown out the voice of her husband, and it would tell her again and again what she was truly worth. That she was a prize child of God. That she was worth the body and the blood of God's precious Son, Jesus Christ. She needed to hear that. She needed to feel that water over and over again in her soul to tell her that she was clean, that she was alive, that she was dressed in the pure and spotless robe of Jesus Christ. She needed to hear it, friends, over and over to the point that she could tell her husband that he could belittle her no more, that he could hurt her no more, that she would not divorce him, but neither would she live with him until he learned to see see her like God saw her. Like God saw her in Jesus Christ as a precious human being, as an image bearer of God, Friends, no relationship can be what it was meant to be, can be what you hope it to be, until you set down your water jug, until you put things on pause, and you let Jesus quench your real thirst first. And his gift, his gift is available for the asking. That's all. If you knew the gift of God and to whom it is that you are speaking, you would ask and he would have given you and he will give you living water that will well up within your soul forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us, give us the patience to wait, to not jump into relationships seeking to slake our thirst until we have met you, until you have satisfied our deepest thirst, until you have made us whole. And then, Lord, as whole Christian people, as people who bear the image of Jesus Christ, then send us out to build friendships, to build marriages, to build families, to build churches where people respect one another and honor one another and can say no to one another where we can love one another. 
Lord, we will wait for you to fill us and to make us new. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.